Heavenly Father, we thank you for your mercy to us in Jesus, and we thank you that uh, through him we have been brought to that point where there is no condemnation for those who are in him. Thank you for the freedom and the confidence we have, and thank you that his word is a word to us, to hear, to hear and to heed, and we pray that this, this morning we might do that. Would you clear away every distraction from us and enable us to hear your voice? For this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we come this morning to the last piece of public teaching by Jesus in Matthew's Gospel. The last part of the last sermon Jesus delivers in this Gospel. After this, any teaching that Jesus does in Simon the leper's house, um, at the Last Supper, in the Garden of Gethsemane, it'll all be done in private. You might remember that five sermons formed the backbone of this gospel, starting with the Sermon on the Mount and ending up with this one, the Olivet Discourse. And one of the fascinating little facts about those sermons is that the first one and the last one both end on the same note, a note of judgment, a warning about the judgment to come. The Sermon on the Mount concludes with Jesus' warning about those to whom he will say on that day, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And then he finished off with the parable of the two houses, one built on a rock, one built on the sand. The person who hears his word and does them and the person who does not. In the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24 and 25, Jesus ends with a picture of the great separation of the sheep from the goats and the judgment that follows. And so it seems that from the beginning to the end of his public ministry, Jesus was concerned about the judgment to come. He was concerned to warn those who listened to him about the great, final, unavoidable judgment to come. Now, judgment, it seems, is something that most of us have a love-hate relationship with. On the one hand, we don't like talking about judgment, and other people don't like us talking about judgment, especially God's judgment. The final judgment to come is not something that you can just drop into polite dinner party conversation. Some of us are even a little embarrassed by the Bible's teaching about judgment, and we try to skate over it as quickly as we can. Let's talk about nice things, as my father would say. Yet at the same time, a longing for justice, where people are treated fairly, where good is vindicated and evil is punished, seems to be hardwired in each of us. You don't need to teach children to recognise when something is unfair. They seem to know it instinctively and complain instantly. As adults, we have mechanisms to ensure that judgment is delivered and delivered fairly, whether it be the academic appeals process at university or here at college or trial before the courts of the land. We want to be dealt with fairly and we want criminals to be brought to justice and to face judgment, especially violent criminals. Every morning when I scroll through my newsfeed, I'm confronted, as I suspect you are too, by the atrocities being committed in Ukraine. 
And I want those who've committed them to be brought to account, to be judged for their crimes. I can feel the anger rise the more I read. I don't want Vladimir Putin and his military commanders to get away with it. The wholesale destruction of cities, the mass killings hidden in mass graves, the war crimes of all types. It's a topic of conversation right around the world. This widespread agreement that brutality on such a scale simply must not go unanswered. But we venture to speak about the judgment of God and the mood changes quickly. Which is why it's so significant that the judgment should be so prominent an issue in Jesus' public ministry. As far as Jesus is concerned, the world will not end with a nuclear holocaust, a climate catastrophe, or even extraterrestrial invasion, but with the great final judgment of God, a judgment delivered by Jesus himself, the Son of Man. So it's absolutely critical that we understand how certain that judgment is, on what it is based, and what is its outcome. So will you turn with me, if you haven't already, to Matthew chapter 25, and let me read from verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne, and all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them, one from another, just as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will set the sheep at his right hand, and the goats at his left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, those blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me, naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did it to the one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Then he will say to those on his left hand, depart from me, those who are cursed, into the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you did not give me something to eat. I was thirsty and you did not give me something to drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, Truly I say to you, to the extent that you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And they will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. When Jesus began this sermon at the beginning of chapter 24, it was in answer to the request from his disciples, tell us, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus told them the signs. Disruption, dislocation, betrayal and persecution, things that have been features of life ever since his resurrection. 
And then he warned them that the end would come, unexpectedly, suddenly, not necessarily at this moment, there might be a long wait, though it could be at any time. So he taught them to be prepared through the story of the faithful and wicked servants caught unawares by the return of their master, the ten virgins, some prepared and some unprepared for the delayed coming of the bridegroom, the servants and the talents, some busy using the resources they've been given to extend the master's interests while he is away, and one who simply buried his talent in the ground. You see, Jesus wasn't interested in indulging his disciples' desire for insider knowledge on God's timetable. Instead, he wanted to warn them to be prepared and to show them how to live as they wait, knowing there is a certain end, that the master will return at any time, a time we do not and cannot know, determines the shape and priorities of the present. And yet, nevertheless, to this point, it's been a little vague. Be prepared. Make the most of the wait in the service of the king. To this point, Jesus has spoken in parables. But now Jesus will sharpen the focus, not with another parable, but with these words about the judgment to come. So very briefly, let's look at the judge, the nature of the judgment, and the outcome of the judgment. First, the judge. Jesus' teaching here is full of allusion to the Old Testament. All the promises of God find their fulfilment in Jesus, and Jesus himself, both in what he does and in what he teaches, makes that clear. Back in Daniel 7, God's prophet had been given a vision of what would happen at the end. Thrones were placed, the Ancient of Days took his seat, the court sat in judgment, the books were opened. It was a tremendously impressive scene. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before the throne. And then Daniel continues, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man and he came to the ancients of days and he was presented before him and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now, Daniel saw that vision in Babylon six centuries before Jesus. It was a picture of judgment, of God's purpose affected in the world by this figure, the Son of Man. And Jesus picks up that image and points to its fulfilment in his own coming at the end. He will come in glory, all the angels with him. He will sit on his glorious throne. This will be a moment of monumental significance against a backdrop of injustice and disorder. In our world, God appoints his judge who will take his place and will enact his judgment. He is the one to whom all authority is given and he is the one who will make all the decisions on that day. Everything on that great day of judgment is centred on him. Every judgment has reference to him because he is the one to whom an everlasting dominion and eternal kingdom has been given. He is the judge who is the king, the man who is the Lord, 
The disciples just had fleeting glimpses of his glory during the time they spent with him. But the day will come when it will be on full display and it will be undeniable. I was once a guest in the Supreme Court of New South Wales. It was a special occasion and the entire bench was there and all the QCs and States Council people were there as well. All the judges in their splendid crimson robes and horsehair wigs seated on enormous padded chairs looking down on the guests seated before them. It was an incredibly impressive occasion. There was little doubt that this was a significant place and that this was a group of very significant people. The words spoken here, the decisions made here, really mattered. And when the Chief Justice stood up to speak, his authority was palpable. But when Jesus comes in glory and all the angels with him and he is seated on his glorious throne, every human court will fade from view. God has fixed a day, Paul told the Athenians, on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed and of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. He is not just the master who has returned at last, or the bridegroom who's been delayed but has finally arrived. He is the king who will execute judgment and his judgment will be the judgment of God. He is the glorious one before whom every single one of us must give an account. So as we revel in the intimacy that we have with Jesus, who calls us his friend, who gives us his spirit and who brings us to his father, we must never lose sight of this. Our saviour is also the judge. It's a wonderful comfort, that identification, but it also means he cannot be treated lightly. He should not be spoken of flippantly. He cannot be treated casually. That's the judge. He is perfectly qualified to make this judgment. Secondly, the nature of the judgment. There, there are three things worth noticing about the judgment he delivers. It's a universal judgment. All nations are gathered before him. No one is outside his jurisdiction. It is inescapable. No matter what your status, no matter what your pedigree, no matter what your record of achievement, whether you're expecting it or not, whether you've acknowledged his authority or not, there is no immunity from this judgment. All will be gathered to stand before him. And friends, we need to remember that and we need to impress that on others. There is no way around this judgment. Each one of us will stand there on that day and this one simple fact should make a world of difference to how we live now to the decisions we make today. And it is a settled judgment. Did you notice that uh, without deliberation, without effort, he separates the nations gathered before him? One group at his right hand and the other at his left. You see, he's delivering a judgment, not conducting a trial. It has already been decided. From the beginning, those on his right are addressed as those blessed of my father. They're told the kingdom they have inherited has been prepared for them from the foundation of the world. Those on his left are addressed as those accused 
and straight away they're told to depart into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. See, on that day, which side you're on won't be up for debate. There won't be any negotiation or plea bargaining. No one should rely on the hope that they can do a deal with God on that day. It will be too late then. And you might have noticed that as Jesus describes this judgment scene, none of those, either on his right hand or his left, try to do that. None of them question where they have been placed. Their question is about something else altogether. It's a universal judgment. It's a settled judgment. It is a Jesus-centred judgment. It's a judgment which focuses on how each one has related to Jesus. To those on his right and those on his left, Jesus begins by talking about how they have treated him. Don't rush too quickly to Jesus' answer to the question that immediately arises for them. It is how they have treated him that is the issue. I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. It's not meant to be taken literally, of course. Jesus was never sick, but he healed those with all kinds of sickness. He was never in prison, but instead was one who released others from all kinds of imprisonment. But what is on view is each person's relationship to Jesus. How you've treated me, Jesus is saying, is the telling factor. How you relate to me. And it is at this point that those on both sides, the right and the left, are surprised. As I said, they're not surprised about where they're placed. There's no protest, no attempt to negotiate, no claim that they really belong on the other side or anything like that. Their question is rather, when? When did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did or did not minister to you? And the answer Jesus gives is simple. Inasmuch to the extent that you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. The unspectacular, ordinary behaviour of how we treat each other turns out to be massively significant to Jesus. It's the same lesson that uh, Saul of Tarsus had to learn on the Damascus Road, isn't it? You'll remember Jesus said to him, asked him, um, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And of course, to that point, as far as we know, Saul had had no personal contact with Jesus. He'd been persecuting the church. But to persecute the church is to persecute Jesus. Such is his identification with his people. And not just the leaders, not just the impressive ones, not just the giants of faith, but the least of these the entirely unimpressive, those that don't seem to matter, those who don't have it all together, but those who nevertheless belong to him. How Jesus' followers are treated is a powerful indication of how Jesus is being treated by that person. As Jesus explains the scene, those on either side seemed unaware that what they were doing or not doing had been done to Jesus. 
That's what surprised them. They thought they were just dealing with people. But they were dealing with him. And the faith that is the proper way to relate to him cannot help but spill out into the way we treat those who are his. You cannot claim to love Jesus and close your heart to the need of those who are precious to him. And that will show itself in the final judgment. That is the evidence, a demonstration of how we relate to him. Now, other places in the Gospels will talk about our responsibility to the needy, whoever they are. A proper Christian concern for and commitment to the most vulnerable, whoever they are, is very clear in the New Testament and it's been a distinctive mark of the Christian movement right from the beginning. The neighbour who is simply the needy person we come across, whoever they are, wherever they are, is not someone against whom we can harden our heart. The same Paul who learnt the lesson of Jesus' identification with those who follow him would write to the Galatians, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people especially to those who are of the household of faith. Christians awaiting the day of judgment must cultivate a soft-heartedness towards those in need, wherever they might be. How we treat the homeless on the streets of Sydney matters. How we treat those at either end of life, those who are chronically ill or disabled, those struggling for the most basic elements of life, how we treat each of them matters. But here in Matthew 25, Jesus draws attention to the connection he has with even the least of these my brothers and the significance of how we treat them. Sign up for all the aid programs you like, but if you do not see, if you refuse to see the need of even the least of these my brothers, you've missed the point of what Jesus is saying here. So finally, uh, the outcome of the judgment. It's right there at the beginning of each interaction, isn't it? Come, those blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world, and depart from me, those who are cursed, into the eternal fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels. And it's there again at the end. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. The, the alternatives are stark, aren't they? The kingdom eternal fire, eternal punishment, eternal life. This alternative is not something that can be taken lightly. The judgment is serious and something we need to be prepared for because the end result of the judgment is so serious. We don't tend to have too much trouble speaking about the joy of life in God's kingdom, inheriting the kingdom that was prepared for us before the foundation of the world, it's something glorious held out for us and it's an incentive to endure when there's struggle in life in the meantime. This is what God has prepared for us. The glory that awaits far outshines the suffering of the present. Yet if we're uncomfortable with talking about judgment, then much more so when it comes to speaking about hell. The language here is frightening and it is deliberately so. It is the same throughout the New Testament. 
Paul spoke about the wrath to come when writing to the Thessalonians. Elsewhere, Jesus spoke about hell as a place where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. It is a terrible, terrible picture. It's something to be avoided at all costs. And that, I take it, is why we're told about it now. The coming of Jesus, about which the disciples had inquired at the beginning of this last sermon, is certain. It's so certain you should get ready for it now. It should shape the way we behave now, the decisions we make now. And being ready, being ready for the one who we've been waiting for, will show itself in a number of ways. How we discharge the responsibility entrusted to us, how we use the resources the Lord's placed in our hands, but not least in how we respond to our brother or sister in need. It's certainly not wrong to look to the final judgment as the reckoning that tyrants like Vladimir Putin will have to face. He won't get away with it. A right and proper judgment will be given and the justice we all long for will be on display for all to see. But it will be a judgment not just on the large scale. It will extend to the seemingly small everyday acts towards our brothers and sisters in need. And Jesus said, Inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this announcement of the judgment to come, the seriousness of its outcome, and how we might prepare not least in the way we treat each other and especially those brothers and sisters we know in need. Would you keep us from hardening our hearts, generally to need in the world, but especially to need amongst your people. Help us to be those who so relate to Jesus that we love those who are his. For we ask it in Jesus' name.